Welcome to episode 262 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In 2023, there were a record 28 American weather and climate disasters that racked up billions and billions of dollars in damages. If California has taught us anything over the past five years or so, it's that wildfires and other natural disasters are a serious threat to power grids and the reliability of our electrical supply. That lesson was driven home in Alberta recently when winter temperatures dipped to minus 57 Celsius with the wind chill. And folks, I grew up in the northern Manitoba where we had those temperatures regularly during winter. And I can tell you that is bone chilling cold. You don't want to go there. Whose job is it to ensure grid reliability in the face of these challenges? Is it utilities and electrical system operators who are often the ones on the pointy end of a crisis when things go wrong? I'll be speaking to Mish Fadadi, CEO of Grid Edge Software Technology and utility solutions provider Rhizome for his insights into what needs to be done. So welcome to Energy Talks, Mish. Hey, great to be here, Markham. This is a, you know, we kind of got, it, it It popped onto our public, you know, radar screen three, four, five years ago. California was was a big problem. 2021, Texas had that bad winter storm and people, you know, hundreds of people died. It was, uh, it was pretty serious. There's been a lot of talk since then about grid, uh, hardening the grid, grid resiliency, grid reliability in the face of extreme weather events caused or exacerbated by climate change. And I think this is going to be our new normal going forward. What's your take in general terms uh, about the likelihood of more extreme weather and how prepared both, you know, North American power grids are for those uh, type of events? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the reality is, and you know, you mentioned likelihood, but the likelihood today of new hazards and extreme hazards are, are becoming more frequent, right? That likelihood is continuing to get higher and higher for the same storms that have existed over a period of time. Just uh, last week, you had California that had an atmospheric river run through it, uh, flood at parts of Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, and the rest of the Bay Area, millions of people uh, lose power. And those atmospheric rivers, as an example, uh, of those types of intensities are anticipated to get more frequent. So it's not just the polar vortexes, it's not just the wildfires, it's hazards that, you know, we haven't even seen yet in some cases. And, you know, you asked a question about, well, how ready is the grid for these intensifying storms? And, and the reality is, is that we already face the least reliable grid in the U.S. out of any major uh, developed country. Uh, it's a large part due to the fact that the grid's pretty old. Uh, you know, the average transmission pole is uh, above 25 years old. And so that means you have uh, certain pieces of infrastructure that are 50, 60, 70 years old. And at the same time, utilities in history over the last decades um, have experienced uh, some challenges related to load growth on their systems. That means, you know, the product that they're uh, tasked with selling, electricity, uh, hasn't been growing as much um, as it is now, now that we're electrifying buildings and transportation. But that means uh, effectively that they've been capital constrained over the last decades, uh, lacking the really the investment that's required to maintain, uh, replace aging infrastructure, 
uh, and then of course build out new infrastructure as well. So all of these challenges um, have resulted in a relatively shaky grid uh, that is obviously getting shakier unless we can start to do some more innovative things or think think about it in a bit of a, a more innovative way. Because I'm located on Vancouver Island off the west coast of Canada, uh, I often, in these kinds of conversations, compare the U.S. grid to the Canadian grids. It's very, very different. It's like night and day. I mean, the in Canada, we have uh, 10 provinces, and each one of them, uh, for the most part, uh, with the exception of a couple provinces, are basically uh, the they have a, a government-owned utility that manages both uh, generation transmission and, and distribution. And for the most part, those grids have been well-maintained. They've been, the investment has been made. They're very stable. And they're, I would say they're probably the least uh, likely to, to, uh, you know, to have an event or to, to be disrupted by a, an extreme weather event. And we saw that, you know, in the in the last year or two, uh, wildfires in British Columbia and, and Alberta, you know, and and we really didn't have the grid go down. There were probably local, you know, instances where the grid was damaged or you know had to be repaired. But all all in all, it was not California when it comes to wildfires. But then we you know we do enough stories now about the the U.S. grid. It's night and day. It's like you said. It's old. It's creaky. We haven't seen any growth really since what, 29, 2009, you know, 15 years. And there's been these horrible fights like in California over who's responsible, who should pay, uh, you know, ratepayers get tacked on with, you know, their, the, the mitigation efforts or reclamation efforts after wildfires get tacked on to bills. And that's very unpopular. So this is, I think, more of a challenge in the, in the short term, the immediate term in the U.S., it was that a fair comment? It's both a, a short-term and a long-term problem. You know, we experience these hazards today, and those hazards are anticipated to increase in the future. Um, I, I think what you're referring to, in, in large part, is the result of a framework in how utilities are governed. And you know, in the U.S. and in Canada, most um, utilities, at least large utilities are investor-owned utilities that are heavily regulated either at the state or at the provincial level. And, uh, you know, frankly, I think there have been gaps or the frameworks that existed in the past of uh, investing in reliability are no longer um, uh, suited to maintaining resilience uh, against those increasing extreme weather events. So, so yeah, I mean, I think real changes need to be happening in the short term. Uh, more capital needs to be put in the ground. And, uh, you know, the technologies that are available to actually mitigate um, uh, these risks in a shorter term fashion, as well as in a longer term fashion, also need to be deployed. Yeah, that's a really good point. I want to get to that. The um, in addition to the challenges posed by climate, the climate crisis and, and the change in uh, extreme weather events, the U.S. is in the process, basically, of re-engineering and rebuilding its power grid. You know, it's got multiple crises going on in the electricity system at the same time, moving to, uh, you know, a lot more wind and solar. So, you know, variable renewable resources. And, and there are a lot of challenges. This is not a small, small thing. And the, uh, but it also presents an opportunity. I mean, if you're going to re-engineer your grid, 
then this is now the perfect time to build in the kind of tracking and monitoring and, and investments in resilience that you're talking about. Is, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the key word there is flexibility, right? Uh, when you have these new variable technologies that are, uh, you know, growing in penetration on the grid, um, you know, technologies such as uh, shifting load at the distribution level, um, being able to uh, increase dynamic line rating um, on transmission lines to accommodate more of those capacities, especially during extreme heat days. Um, and, and in general, uh, you know, better practices on actually managing uh, electricity flow uh, on the transmission system. And that a lot of that uh, comes down to uh, automation and, and using some of the devices to increase and reroute power, uh, both at the bulk system as well as at the distribution level. I got a question for you. Um, there's been a lot of debate uh, in various provinces, uh, and I'm sure down in some states, about the move to a smart grid. So basically, you know, you're putting uh, smart meters on people's homes and on, on their businesses, and all sorts of conspiracy theories up here in British Columbia about that. You know, we won't get into that. Uh, but where are we at with uh, with smartening up the the U.S. grid so we can do more tracking and do big, you know, uh, big analytics kind of work? Yeah, I think the first round of uh, smart grid devices happened during the um, uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act uh, back after um, the financial crisis. And you know, billions of dollars were invested in uh, in smart devices, uh, both in meters as well as other types of equipment uh, on the distribution and transmission grid. Um, so the rollout, uh, while it has been slow, there is decent penetration, specifically in states who have adopt adopted it with with open arms, uh, and have um, and have we started to see some of the usefulness of some of those digital technologies. Um, for instance, in real time, be able to disaggregate uh, what are the appliances for customers that, uh, in terms of what they're using from a consumption standpoint, so that you can target different programs around energy efficiency and manage that consumption. Um, so that's just one example, but we have a long way to go. Um, I don't remember the latest statistics on uh, advanced metering penetration, but uh, from our work with utilities and when we do ingest some of these uh, advanced meter data sets so that we can run analyses, on potential hotspots or vulnerable spots on the grid from extreme weather events, there are definitely gaps. Um, with this new tranche of funding from the federal government, and there are billions of new dollars coming out for all sorts of technologies, not just um, the sensors or the new meters that are coming out, uh, we anticipate that the digitization of the electric utility sector is going to uh, have a very steep ramp over the next few years, and we'll be able to run all sorts of models, both machine learning and otherwise. How digitized is the American grid? And I know we're talking about grids because, you know, you've got ERCOT in Texas, which is isolated, but most of the other grids are interlinked uh, through interties and, and the regional transmission organizations. And you, so you're going to have various degrees of digitalization uh, depending on the region and the grid and, and so on. So just in general, how digitized is it? That is a... Uh... A complicated question to try to answer um, in a, a few sentences, but the way that I would describe it is that over the last five, 10 years, the digitization has gotten a lot better. Um, I think the utility industry, which you know historically over the last decades has operated off of largely paper records um, and trying to do maintenance and investment planning uh, based off of these paper records, uh, have done a really good job of going through the IT technical efforts of 
making those records digital to the extent that um, you can run analyses, you can track investments, track maintenance, uh, optimize workflows, create efficiencies, uh, and then create new insights that'll uh, better allow both utilities and customers to get the most that they want out of the grid. Um, so whether it's you know digitizing the actual system, identifying the power flows that are coming into play, um, especially in the investor-owned realm where there's more flexibility and capital to spend in this arena, uh, we see a huge amount of digitization. Any um, investor-owned utility that we go to typically has digital records for most of their, if not all of their assets, um, uh, outage data going back 15, 20 years, and, and are starting to deploy advanced distribution management systems to really granularly uh, uh, quantify power flow and, uh, and uh, operate in a real time. And so we see this across the board where I think there might be a little bit of an underinvestment. And again, this is the goal of the federal government uh, to close this gap is in uh, the tribal nations, is in the rural cooperatives, and then sometimes the municipal utilities that still quite, can't quite move as fast because there are slightly more capital constraints um, involved here. Um, we're, I'm optimistic that given these new advances with uh, through federal funding means, we'll be able to start working with some of the smaller rural co-op and municipal utilities as well, not just the big players. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, and, and by that, I mean the federal funding. Uh, the Inflation uh, Reduction Act uh, was estimated to be about $369 billion over 10 years when it was introduced in uh, August of 2022. I've since seen estimates that it could be much, much higher depending on uptake because a lot of it is investment tax credits. And so you don't really know until the uh, the private sector makes those investments, just how much tax credits will be granted, could be 500, 500 billion, could be more. We don't know. We don't know. So, but it's going to be a considerable amount of money. And the federal government has targeted the power sector for a lot of that investment. You know, you see Jigger Shaw from the Department of Energy out, you know, proselytizing around virtual power plants, microgrids, that sort of thing. I mean. There, there's a lot there's a lot coming uh, from there. So what's your take on the Inflation Reduction Act and other pieces of federal and, and state legislation in this area? Are we are we doing enough? Have we got enough capital? Uh, will it uh, speed things up? What's your take? Yeah, and I certainly don't want to discount the bipartisan infrastructure law that was that was passed in 2021, right which absolutely. which helps solve the problem of of the aging grid, right? Whereas a lot of the IRA is uh, intended to fund a lot of the clean energy resources, virtual power plants, as you mentioned, um, and some and leveraging some of those funds to provide flexibility at scale on the distribution system, which is not something that we've ever had before. Uh, and so the ability to unlock a lot of those uh, key pieces of innovation that will allow, going back to the flexibility piece, us to adapt to a greater penetration of renewable energy uh, being able to follow loads much more closely. And then when those, especially when those extreme temperature days roll around and you're hitting peak load and people are, you know, starting to um, uh, install new appli electric appliances, you know, uh, whether it's your uh, air conditioner, heat pump, um, or, uh, or an electric vehicle, you now have many more resources to actually adapt to those changing uh, peaks. Forecasting those peaks is something that uh, that we are looking to provide to the utilities so that uh, they can adequately map and plan out what level of flexibility do they need at every given stage uh, down the road up to like 30 years in advance. So 
Uh, that's something that we're paying really close attention to. It's really exciting, the new innovations at scale that are going to be unlocked, especially by the loan program office. But then going back to the infrastructure bill, there are smart grid grants, there are resilience-related grants, just plain old infrastructure that needs to get deployed. And uh, not only is the $65 billion from the infrastructure law going you know, directly into uh, climate resilience and adaptation types uh, of measures, but you're going to see the private sector also follow uh, with with their own uh, level of capital. So I think you know close to hundreds of billions of dollars will be deployed at the end of the day between um, uh, the infrastructure bill and the IRA just for the uh, resilience and adaptation of the grid alone. Now, you're kind of in this space, so I'm, I'm really curious to know what your view is of the role of artificial intelligence, because this, I think in the last, you know, 2023 for me was the year that AI really got on my radar. Uh, though I imagine for a lot of people it was before that. But last year, I think, was the breakout year for AI, arguably. And it seems like, given the role that data and predictive analysis and analytics are going to play going forward on this new modernized grid, that AI's got to play a big role. The U.S. is considered, you know, if not the leading nation, but one of the, the leading nations in, de in developing and deploying AI. Is that a major competitive advantage for the United States? I certainly think so. Uh, some of the cutting edge, uh, you know, top of the line AI research is happening here in the U.S. Um, I think there are other measures and factors to consider when you think about AI adoption, especially by large enterprises. Uh, that is, you know, going back to the regulatory environment, um, our state utility regulators are, is the federal, uh, re you know, regulatory uh, bodies going to allow for uh, more use of AI for specific use cases across the board. And if we can get uh, down to consensus faster on what makes sense, where to apply AI, how, how to make it explainable, um, how to make sure you can uh, unpack uh, the methodologies that are going into it, and then, of course, set some governance standards. Uh, I think that is something that we, of course, need to put in place to ensure that there's safety and security as we start deploying AI models. But then most of the uptake of artificial intelligence uh, is going to be up to the enterprises themselves. Uh, and, of course, the technology companies that are designing uh, specific products using AI around a use case. So enterprises and technology companies like mine really need to come together to really fully you know, create the flow of dialogue and information to identify what are the critical use cases of AI that we can deploy today, given the data sets, given uh, the latest AI technologies, uh, and given the ability for utilities to be able to explain that to their regulators uh, and other types of enterprises, not just utilities. I think what's really going to uh, make a difference here is uh, when you give uh, entrepreneurs uh, the ability to uh, leverage tools to create more efficiencies and to give some predictive capabilities to these large-scale enterprises and communicate the value, that's where you're really going to start to see uh, the uptake really occur. What's the role of AI and the kind of software and services that you provide to utilities? Uh, how is that going to affect the development of things like virtual power plants, um, microgrids, uh, vehicle-to-grid integration, I mean, this is an example, uh, those three examples are demonstrate how the, the grid is changing so dr very dramatically with the introduction of uh, electric technologies and, and, uh, and other, other grid technologies. This is another thing we don't talk about enough is how the grid, 
there's a, a, a slew of really innovative grid technologies that, that are permitting uh, us to do more with what we've got. And, you know, grid enhancing technologies, for example. Uh, how is all, that all going to come together to increase the efficiency and reliability of the, the U.S. power grid? Yeah, maybe it starts just uh, in terms of what we do, which we take a very risk-centric approach to uh, infrastructure planning. That is, uh, let's evaluate what are all the things that can go wrong from uh, a resilience standpoint. So you have different buckets of risks like cyber risks, uh, extreme temperature risk, with, which causes uh, peak load. And then you have physical hazards like storms, uh, snow loading, uh, wildfires, so on and so forth. And so uh, when you take these risks into consideration, you're trying to plan against them in order to deliver safe, reliable power to uh, electric utility customers. And when you look at some of the new technologies out there uh, that are an alternative to traditional utility investments, like you know, replacing some of their aging assets, trimming trees and doing vegetation management, um, uh, or, or even doing undergrounding projects to help reduce risk, you really have to see uh, what do those new, new technologies actually do aside from providing additional uh, flexibility and better value to customers. And really what, you know, the, especially the storage and microgrid technologies are doing is help reducing the risk of those extreme heat days that certain parts of the grid are going to become constrained uh, so that you can measure over a long period of time the effectiveness of those investments against that extreme temperature risk. And they also provide backup power uh, for when the grid actually goes down from some of those physical climate hazards as well. So when you think about deploying those technologies, and obviously we all consider these technologies, um, you know, solar storage, heat pumps, microgrids to be uh, clean energy technologies. And the, the goal here is sustainability. What we're effectively trying to do is make sure that the risk profile as you deploy these technologies doesn't change. And, you know, I think the common mantra here is that, yes, we want to have an energy transition without sacrificing reliability and resilience. In order to make that happen, we need to get a firm grasp on those underlying risks. And that's effectively what we're providing for, especially for utility customers. We're going to wrap up our interview with this last question because uh, China is on certainly on my mind these days. And China is embracing uh, uh, renewables in a huge way and upgrading and modernizing its grid uh, just as rapidly as possible. And they're doing it in part because it's a competitive advantage. You know, if you're if you're going to build out your EV manufacturing uh, sector or your solar panel module manufacturing industries, you need you need cheap, clean, reliable power. Is it the case in the U.S. that regulators, utilities, and other stakeholders see the modernizing modernization of the grid and making it more reliable and resilient as part of a competitive advantage in a you know a future where the economy is more electric than it has been yeah i mean look uh georgia the state of georgia has attracted all types of manufacturing and commercial businesses from the fact that they actually have an extremely reliable grid and the fact that they have low cost energy as well and uh, whenever you talk to some of the major industrial industries out there, you know, steel manufacturing, cement, uh, so on and so forth, one of the major factors they consider for new locations is how reliable and how affordable is the power in, in those areas. So if we take the ball 
off of uh, uh, making sure that we can provide that foundation and that infrastructure that these large scale industries rely on, it's going to just be much more attractive for those industries to go elsewhere. Uh, and there's there's really, you know, in a global economy, um, that is something that is absolutely in a reality. So um, again, that's that's a major focus for Rhizome is to make sure that utilities can actually provide that surface uh, at a low cost by anticipating uh, and planning the grid in a way that you're minimizing those interruptions as risks as much as possible with the least amount of capital. Well, Mish, thank you very much for coming out. I, I really enjoyed our conversations and thank you for your insights. I appreciate it. Really, really great to be here, Markham. Thank you.